0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning, we are concluding our series called Hope Amid the Ruins, where we have been looking at the Old Testament stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, and it's been about how God has been at the work of renewing the hearts and the soul of his people after these painful years in exile. And... Some of the factors of this year have pulled us away from the regular aspects of our worshiping together and reminding us that faith is something that God builds in us when we come together as a people. And I don't know if it's helpful for you to think about this year as kind of like a year in exile, but the Bible is this story of hope for exiles. That that's essentially what we see going on in Nehemiah, that God finds Hope in a Hopeless Place. Is that a song? I think that might be a song. I didn't mean to quote a song. Anyway, um, last week we heard about how the reading and the hearing of the scriptures, kind of the, the story of the new covenant and creation and the, the giving of the law led the people into this period of repentance together. And we're going to continue at the end of the next chapter, chapter 9, and I'm going to read the last verse and then jump over to verse 28 in chapter 10. In between, there are a whole bunch of names uh, in this passage. I'm not skipping over them because they're unimportant, but because they're kind of symbolic. They're they're like the people saying, we are all in, we are all in this together. And so we come to this act of communal repentance, and it leads to communal resolve. So let us together hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 9. In view of all this, that is the reading of the law that took place, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Jumping down to chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with all their wives and their sons and daughters who were able to understand. All these now join with their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a the curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons, When the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table. For the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feast, and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring the house of our God at set times each year, a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. We also assume assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree. And as it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, We will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, the fruit of all of our trees, and all of our new wine and olive oil, and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, Almighty God, we ask that as we hear your word, that by your Spirit you would transform us, so that in the hearing we may obey and obeying may be your faithful disciples. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Resolve. There's a pivotal moment in the life of Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century uh, evangelical revivalist preacher who had this spiritual awakening, and as a result of that, he wrote 70 or so resolutions that would kind of serve as guidelines for how he was going to live and order his life. And so he'd write things in his journal like this, Resolved. Never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or in body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. Resolved, always to do that which I shall wish I had done when I see others do it. Resolved, never to suffer the least motions of anger to irrational beings. Kind of like that one. I feel like that would keep you from getting on, you know, fights on Twitter or Facebook. Resolved. To study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. Resolved. To improve every opportunity. When I am in the best and happiest frame of mind to cast and venture my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him and consecrate myself wholly to him, that from this I may have assurance of my safety, knowing that I confide in my Redeemer. On and on these kind of resolutions went, 70 or so of them, and you might think of him as a fanatic, but what I take from this chapter in Edward's life is that Something happened that he captured a a vision, and, and he saw this vision so clearly that he wanted to kind of just throw his life into it. Jesus describes it like this in Matthew chapter 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it and that 's kind of where we find the people of Israel as we come to the end of nehemiah they 've come to this assembly with all of these questions about how and and where and and why you know, why, why does God seem to have his phone off the hook in this moment and, and they read the law and it hits them wait, wait, maybe it 's not so much that God has not been there for us, that God has not been faithful to us, but that we have actually been unfaithful to God and so they start to kind of reorder their life together they put some structure to their worship and and how they think about the past and how they can keep from kind of rhyming with the past it's like they're kind of chartering a a new constitution a new way forward that is in continuity with the best parts of their past They're saying together with one voice, we have found what we are looking for. We have found our pearl of great value, and we are gonna throw ourselves into it. And it's not gonna come by, you know, choosing to live out our own story. No, it's gonna come when we find our story in our our place in the plot of the story that God is writing into the world. And so this, this, this ceremony becomes this way of marking time. It becomes this covenant, this, this place for renewal, this place to say we are going to be different from this point forward. And I wonder, have you ever had a, a moment in which you have been so convicted of something or, or you've seen something so beautiful and right, and true, you got so convinced that a better thing was out there, that it made you kind of take stock of your life and think, everything's got to be different. You make a change, and you decide, I'm not going to look back. Or you've experienced God's presence so clearly that you've come to that point to where, uh, like the old... Uh, Pastor Earl Palmer used to say that you cannot doubt in the dark what you saw clearly in the light. Maybe your faith was born out of like some sort of personal crisis or you experienced this, this moment of moral clarity and you're not sure how grace worked in that moment but you know that you changed. You know that you started to do things differently. You started to see the world differently. Well, while there are these moments, I think sometimes, of that kind of crystal clarity, more often than not, for most of us, we see the changes that need to be made, and we just we feel like they are too high up on the shelf, out of reach. So how does transformation happen? Well, as we wrap up this series and as we prepare to... Enter into the season of uh, preparation, uh, known as Lent. This time where we prepare our hearts to receive the glory of what God has done in Easter. That's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how do we change? Nehemiah ends with the people renewing the covenant and and promising to live differently. And if I were to end this series right there, you could be forgiven you know, for hearing, you know, so go out there and do it, you know, try harder, recommit, it's all on you now. And if I were to say that, if I were to end there, that would be spiritual malpractice. Because we all know that willpower alone is only going to get us so far, right? I mean, how many of you out there are still crushing it with those New Year's resolutions, So how does lasting change happen? How does spiritual transformation take place? Well, those are questions that Dallas Willard uh, spent his life pursuing, both as a follower of Jesus and as a professor at a secular university, a professor of moral philosophy. You, You may have heard me mention his name a couple of times. And in his book, Renovation of Heart, he took this lifetime of thinking and teaching and observing, and he described what he saw as the general pattern of transformation. But rather than hit you with some theory, let me first see if I can kind of explain it by way of analogy. So I want you to go with me on a little thought experiment, okay? I want you to imagine that you are in your junior year of college. Some of you have to put yourselves back in that space, some of you maybe have to look forward to that space, and you have decided to spend a year abroad in Italy, ostensibly because it's really important for you to study Renaissance art to complete your degree in accounting or whatever. But really, it's just because you want to, you know, sit in a cafe and drink espresso, And talk about life and just kind of live that that general bohemian lifestyle. Anyway, you are out on the Piazza del Campo one day. Uh, Imagine that this is in a COVID-less world. And you are out there eating gelato and having a, a deep conversation about philosophy and art and life and Jesus and all these great things with your fellow student travelers and then across the way. Out in the distance, your eyes lock with someone who is just absolutely stunning. And in that moment, you you start to see the the movie reel of your life unfold. You see uh, the wedding, the kids, the vacations out on the beach. You start to see, you know, celebrating San Valentino's Day, out on a gondola ride in Venice, you see cheering together at AC Milan football games. And the thing that pulls you back to reality is that when this person comes up to speak with you, you don't understand a word that they're saying because you don't speak Italian. So what do you do? What's standing between you and the future that just seized your heart and captured your imagination? Well, if the vision is compelling enough, you will find a way around the obstacles, right? You're going to throw yourself into learning the language. You're going to commit because the future you have seen is so beautiful that you are willing to rearrange your life to pursue it. And you're, you're willing to to wager everything you have got for the one thing that you need. So you take every Italian class you can find, you join every study group that you can, your semester abroad stretches into a year, all so that it is just the slightest bit possible for you to engage in this future that has called you into action. All right, silly illustration, but that generally is how transformation happens. Dallas Willard calls this paradigm of transformation under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the VIM model, and VIM is this acronym that stands for vision, intention, and means, and the order in which they appear is important, because in order for the Spirit to actually call us forth into the work of transformation, we need to have a compelling vision of the future toward which we are called. And that is exactly why Jesus started out his ministry by saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, it's this this word metanoeo in Greek. It it gets at both this idea of of changing your mind, but also of changing your heart, changing your, your inner disposition. It's what Paul describes as being transformed by the renewal of your minds in Romans it's all about exchanging the current trajectory that you are on the current loves the current things that kind of pull your heart into their direction in favor of a better direction and that that direction that trajectory is the kingdom that has come in Jesus And so in order for that to take hold of us, we need to have a clear vision that our lives will actually be better if we are walking in step with the kingdom of God, that our lives will be more true, more free, that we will be more authentically who we are, who God created us to be, if we partner with the Spirit in walking along this path of transformation. Jesus came and he preached the kingdom of God. And if you're, you know, if you're wondering what that is, what that looks like, I mean, Luke 4 gives a a shorthand of it. That's why we spent a lot of time in the fall talking about the Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke 4, uh, Jesus goes into the temple in his hometown on the Sabbath day. He asks somebody to hand him the scroll of Isaiah. He kind of unrolls it, spends his time, finds the spot that he is looking for, and he reads out this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, And he began by saying to them, maybe the shortest sermon ever, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Ancient Near East dropped the mic moment, but he described the kingdom as this domain in which prisoners are set free. Where the the blind regain their sight, where the oppressed are released from bondage, where God's favor is proclaimed, a place where the rest, where the shalom of the kingdom is ever present and all around, where the year of Jubilee, the year of Sabbath rest, is is something that you can step right into, particularly for the poor, for the burdened, for the, the stressed out. It's this state of reality for everyone. And that vision is really good news, particularly if you are in chains or oppressed or blind or indebted. And if that was you, if you were out there on the margins, you would hear this message and you would not think twice about leaving the life that you were living behind and following Jesus. You'd say, sign me up for this kingdom. I want to go to that place. And if the vision is strong enough, It'll pull your heart, strong as gravity, toward the thing that is calling to your heart. It's going to reorder everything. If you don't think that the kingdom that Jesus offers is actually better than the life that you are currently living, why would you bother? The better part of repentance is not about saying that you are sorry. It's actually about committing to live on a different path. It's about following Jesus on a path that leads to the kingdom. And the the reality is that there are a whole lot of people in the Gospels who decide that this vision of the kingdom was simply not good enough. Gospels tell the story of a wealthy young man who walked away from this invitation to follow Jesus because the vision that he had, the vision in which he could cling to all of his stuff, was more compelling, more real, more sure to him than the vision that Jesus was offering. And the Gospels tell us that he walked away grieved because he knew that those things had a pull on his heart. Uh, A little while ago uh, at my last church, we did a pastor's conference uh, from folks uh, all around our presbytery, and they came and descended upon Newport Beach, um, stayed in this really swanky hotel that one of the members of our church happened to own, and, you know, every morning that this conference was started, people would come up to me like, oh, it must be hard to labor for the gospel here in Newport Beach, and uh, at one point, you know, after hearing that like the third or fourth time... I said, well, actually, you know what? The hard thing about the kingdom here is explaining to people that the kingdom of God is actually better than all this. Like, that's the challenge. That is the challenge for a lot of us, to believe that the kingdom of God is something that is going to be better than the comfort that we're living in, than the, than the security, than the relative peace and freedom that we have. We need to see the kingdom clearly, Because if we are going to encounter Jesus in the Gospels, he's going to call us to follow him. And yet, the thing is, vision alone is not strong enough to produce transformation. You may be all in on this vision. But you have to decide to actually pursue Jesus' vision of the kingdom and to order your life by it. God is not going to do that for you. And so the second part is intention, which is simply desire plus the will to act. It's not just some kind of vague hopefulness that things are going to work out. It's actually leaning into something. Uh, If you want to learn how to play the piano, you're going to have to spend a a lot of time practicing scales. You're going to learn how to, to read music. You're going to be listening to piano music all the time. If you intend to learn a skill, you need to put it into practice if you don't have the intention, you're not going to get up in the morning, and that's where Ezra and Nehemiah find the people after reading the law and their repentance. It's this kind of covenant renewal ceremony, uh, this recognition that they have come to a place in their life together where they they need to form a new relationship to God and a a, a new way of being together on the other side of their time in exile. So then the question is, if, if they have been taken hold, of, if, if I have been taken hold of this vision of the kingdom and I intend to step into it, then what are the means of grace that are available that will allow me to partner with the Spirit, to grow into the kind of person who will naturally live in step with the kingdom? What are the means that will provide transformation What are the the practices? What are the habits that will allow me to become the kind of person whose habits and whose character is more and more like Jesus and is more and more in line with the kingdom that he brought? Uh, David Swanson, a pastor up in the Chicago area, puts it nicely when he writes this, Christian discipleship is not simply obeying what Jesus said, it's also learning to do what he did. And while there's more that can be said about what a disciple is, for our purposes, a Christian disciple follows Jesus to become like him and to do what he does. Part of following Jesus is about taking on the habits and the practices that Jesus himself took on. And a spiritual practice is simply a means through which we grow into this vision of the kingdom And there are things that are going to change us over time. And so a, a spiritual practice like Sabbath is something that I have the ability to do within my own power that allows me, by partnering with the Spirit, to do something that I do not presently have the ability to do. It changes me over time. Imagine that for a good many people, the invitation to live a life free from anger that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, this, this vision of life that Jesus casts is something beautiful and compelling, particularly if we struggle, or struggle with, with anger in our lives. But but wanting it isn't enough. We need to surrender. We need to partner with the Spirit. We need to retrain our bodies, our, our habits of thought. We need to repent. We need to meta. Noeo, in order to arrive at a different outcome. We don't just change automatically, we have to change the way that we prepare. We have to change the way that we do things. And in the case of anger, that'll mean actively, you know, kind of like determining what patterns of thought, what embodied habits, what emotions, relationships, what kind of circumstances evoke those feelings of anger within me. I'm not going to be able to act differently if my inner being is essentially unmoved. Willard gives this example. When my neighbor, who has triumphed over me in the past, now stands before me in a need I can remedy, I will not, on the spot, go do the good thing if my inner being is filled with all the thoughts, feelings, and habits that characterize the ruined soul, and its world. Rather, if I intend to obey Jesus Christ, I must intend and decide to become the kind of person who would obey. That is, I must find the means of changing my inner being until it is substantially like his, pervasively characterized by his thoughts, feelings, habits, and relationship to the Father. So, in order to become this person in whom anger is not persistently manifest, I'm going to need to find a method that will allow me to respond with compassion and with patience in those places where previously I would kind of erupt. And one way to do this would, might be by finding a place of solitude and silence where I can reflect upon the God who is, as we prayed this morning, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I might need to reflect on the sources of my unmet expectations and my fear and find those breadth of of scripture passages that speak about God's character. And, And this time in solitude and meditation will allow me to kind of internalize the reality that while God may not be pleased with every single action that I take, God's fundamental disposition toward me is that of a loving father. If my anger is the result of insufficient love for myself, pouring itself out in deficient love for other people, then I need to spend some time setting aside a portion of my week to sit with God and allow his love and his rest to wash over me. And so far from being kind of a you know, like a repressive boundary on my time in that space, Sabbath actually becomes the means through which the Spirit allows me to be impacted in my, my daily actions, my daily thoughts, my daily habits. And over time, that will allow my feelings to change. Okay, that was a lot of theory. I hope you all are still kind of with me out there. Um, I know it's a lot, but that generally, that's how spiritual transformation takes place. It's this coordinating you know, vision of, of vision, intention, and means um, to allowing those things to kind of draw you into the reality of the kingdom. And anything worth doing requires practice. Training in Christianity is really no different. Um, we need to practice the way of Jesus if we 're going to participate in the flourishing of his kingdom. And if we are going to become hopeful rebuilders, it takes a bit of resolve. And that's where we find, again, Nehemiah and his community. And for him and for for them, that meant finding these new forms of worship, this new relationship with God. Once they came to this spot where they kind of understood how the scriptures both convicted them and consoled them, they're able to respond with this renewed sense of strength that the the joy of the Lord will, will, will give them, and this renewed sense of their dependence upon him. But I also want to be real clear, it's not just about finding the right means or the right technique. It is about being reliant on the Spirit of God. This covenant renewal that we see here, it's the the start of kind of this religious system that 400 years later, Jesus is going to have to come into and butt heads with a whole bunch of times. So how does it fit into our world as we are seeking to partner with God in this work of rebuilding? Well, I want to suggest to you a couple of questions for reflection. Uh, Maybe you can talk about them in your community groups. Uh, You can do some sort of kind of, you know, personal inventory with these questions this week. And they're these. Uh, One, can I actually articulate the kind of transformation that needs to take place uh, both in my life and maybe in the, in the broader community in which I live? Secondly, how committed to this am I? What actually needs to change in me in order to pursue this vision? And third, what kind of practices can I undertake to partner with the Spirit in this work of transformation? Once you see the work to be done, you get to join God in the process of building the scaffolding. As we come to the season of Lent this week, uh, starting on Ash Wednesday, this Wednesday, it's my conviction that one of the things that American Christianity, that, uh, you know, that we as a community uh, need to learn how to recover, if we're going to find hope, is the practice of Sabbath is simply stopping and resting and worshiping and delighting in the goodness of creation. That was part of Israel's renewal well as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, it might seem a little bit counterintuitive in a year that has felt like we're in limbo, but Sabbath is a day to worship and to remember to hold a vision of the kingdom in front of our our minds and our hearts so that we can come out of that place ready to engage the work of transformation that God longs to do in the world. Sabbath gives us that space for our souls to catch up to our bodies, for us to allow God that work of transforming us and Because I mean, the only life in which God can transform us happens to be the life that we are currently living. So our team is making available a study guide this week with some practices around Sabbath to help us live into the rest of the kingdom over the next few weeks as we prepare for Easter. Uh, There's no place on that to affix your seal like they did in Nehemiah, but it is an invitation to allow God to begin this work of transforming you. God longs to do the work of renovation in you. And now as we, as we come to the table, as we do each week, we engage in our own kind of covenant renewal ceremony. As we remember Jesus, we give thanks for this meal, and we, we begin as he did, giving gratitude for all of the things all of the the beauty and the gifts and the goodness of life, the gifts of his presence in these ordinary things, bread and wine, transformed by his grace to be means of partnering with him in his death so that we can partner with him in his resurrection. And so, friends, as we come to the table, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Friends, as we come to the table, we are reminded how Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after he had given thanks, he took the bread And he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and poured it out, saying, this cup is the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so it is that whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again. And so, friends, as we come to this meal, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Come, friends, the table is set. All has been made ready. Amen.